0: As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at a passage in Luke chapter 9, and then we'll skip a few verses. I'll explain why in just a few moments. And then we'll look at Luke chapter 10 and the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11. In today's reading, we're going to see the following in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his disciples, they've left Jerusalem, and they are seen now in undisclosed villages in Samaria. This evangelistic tour of the 70 that took place in Luke chapter 10, it took place probably in Samaritan cities, although that cannot be substantiated. And Jesus is hosted in Bethany, which is just two miles east of Jerusalem by Mary and Martha. And these events take place, everything that we're going to read today, within the last six months of Jesus' ministry, just prior to his crucifixion. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, the disciples offered to nuke a Samaritan city. Verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. In Luke's chronology, there is a definite and significant time lapse between verses 1-2 through 50 of this chapter 9 and beginning here with verse 51 probably a difference of several months this is indicated with the wording of verse 51 says and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go to jerusalem as jesus prepares to go to jerusalem an advance party checks out a samaritan city for a stopover on the way Knowing that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, these village Samaritans carry on the Jewish-Samaritan feud, and it says they did not receive him. One well, of the disciples are disturbed. And they ask Jesus if he wants them to call fire down from heaven on this village, just like Elijah did. Jesus replies by saying, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. you got to admire the faith of James and John here. It was just a short time earlier when James and John, along with Peter, had been rebuked by Jesus for their lack of faith as they unsuccessfully attempted to cast out a demon in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. It was at that time when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Apparently, that left a huge impression on James and John. They volunteer right here to nuke the whole city with fire. They propose that they're going to be able to call down from heaven. Though the act of faith might have been misdirected, still, you know, you got to believe that they had taken that mustard seed faith lecture very seriously. Incidentally, they were referring to Elijah's dealings with the soldiers back in 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, verses 57 to 62 aren't part of the chronological reading today, but we're going to consider them nonetheless. And let me make a few comments. These last six verses of Luke 9, verses 57 to 62, uh, they parallel actually with Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. And so I've included the notes on these verses with the Matthew 8 reading. It would appear that Matthew and Luke are citing the same occasion, but the placement of Matthew 8 a few months before this seems to be the proper time frame for the event. So I deal with these verses in the February 22nd reading uh, under the heading of Is This Really the Cost of Discipleship in Matthew 8, 18-22 and Luke 9:57 to 62 these verses... But I tell you what, let's do. Let's go ahead and read these verses anyway, so that we know how many gaps in today's reading. Verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my Father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, go to the uh, reading that I mentioned in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, which can be found on the February 22nd reading and get the uh, explanation of those verses. That brings us down to chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, where we see the 70 are sent out. Verse 1, "'After these things the Lord appointed other 70 also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, where the he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, "'The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves.' "'Carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. "'And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. "'And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. "'If not, it shall turn to you again. "'And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, "'for the labor is worthy of his hire. "'Go not from house to house.' And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding. Be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it should be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. And hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples, and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Now there was a previous mission trip involving just the twelve apostles sometime earlier back in Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 to 15 also paralleled in Mark 6, 7 through 13 and Luke 9, 1 through 6. At least several weeks, perhaps months, have passed now, and Jesus sends these newly appointed 70 disciples out on another special mission. We may at first quickly read through this passage and dismiss it as mm, just one that's not doctrinally significant. However, this passage, with a few other supporting passages, has characterized the doctrinal position of churches around the world and through the centuries. Here's the question. Does this commission to these 70 directly apply to believers today? Now, before you answer, you may want to look closely at all the specifications issued by Jesus regarding this particular evangelism campaign. Let's look closely at this at the time of the sending. First of all, he said in verse 1, go in teams of two. In verse 4, carry no provisions. In verse 4, he also said, greet no one along the way. In verses 6 and 7, he says, "...bless the houses where you enter." And then in verses 7 and 8, he says, "...let your hearers provide your necessities as a function of due wages." Verse 8, "...heal the sick." And verse 9, "...preach the kingdom of God," that message, the message that specifically is Jesus is the Messiah, "...come to fulfill Old Testament prophecies." In verses 10 to 15, we see that if a city does not receive the message that they took, the message of the kingdom, symbolically wipe the dust from your feet while proclaiming a curse on that city. In verses 17 and 18, we see that they were given power over demons. And in verse 19, they were immune to the deadly effects of serpents and scorpions. Now, by the way, churches that handle serpents as a matter of their regular corporate worship services do so because of this passage. It's worth noting the special provisions of this particular mission. If one insists on claiming the supernatural abilities given in this commission as applicable to normal everyday Christian living, then verse 4 must likewise be strictly adhered to as well as the gestures of verses 10 to 15, wiping the dust off your feet of any city that doesn't receive you. That must be observed likewise. These verses explain a special mission for this platoon of 70 uh, witnesses. It's a dangerous precedent as well as impractical to take every command Jesus ever uttered to anyone and twist it to make portions of it applicable to every believer from then to now. Obviously, these were special commands for a special mission. Additionally, it is true that Jesus offered protection to the apostles and subsequent believers from the hazards of mission work In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 20, you may want to take a look at that passage. However, these verses aren't included to encourage people to go looking for trouble. It's just verses on how to deal with it when it comes. Of course, there's a lapse of time between the sending in verses 1 to 16 and the return of the witnesses that we see in verses 17 to 24. In verses 25 to 37, Jesus addresses the issue of eternal life. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written of the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Now, most of the questions we've seen addressed to Jesus up to this point have dealt with discipleship, but not this one. This lawyer specifically asked about the conditions of eternal life. You'll notice the lack of sincerity in the question by the lawyer found in verse 25, where he says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Greek word, therefore, tempted is ek pirazo. It means to test thoroughly. Keep in mind, therefore, that the question is not one of personal inquiry, but an attempt to cause Jesus to make a verbal misstep that could lead to an early trial for blasphemy. Jesus replies by asking the lawyer what the law says concerning eternal life. The lawyer correctly responds by quoting a standard found in several passages from the Old Testament. One would be Deuteronomy 6, 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Deuteronomy 10:12 says, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul? And we find in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, And it shall come to pass, if he shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy thirteen three, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you, to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Again in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. And finally, Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, understand this. Salvation has always been about faith. Specifically, a covenant relationship is established with God by faith all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it said, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Literally, the love expressed in the Old Testament scriptures constitutes a faith relationship with God. When the lawyer presses Jesus on the specifics of loving one's neighbor— Jesus chooses an illustration involving a demonstration of love for someone normally distasteful to a Jew. That'd be a Samaritan. Jews didn't like Samaritans. Jesus makes a point in John 13, 34 and 35 when he's talking to his disciples, and the apostle John repeats it again in 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24, both those passages on love. And that's this, that salvation in God by faith is accompanied by its own attributes. Love for one another is one of those attributes. So, while the lawyer was looking for a clear proclamation of personal deity from Jesus, instead he received an explanation of the relationship between faith and love. Now, notice the parable that Jesus uses in verses 30 to 36. He starts with an uncaring priest, then an uncaring Levite. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, by the way, per Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 to 7. These were two highly respected classes of people with regard to their perceived relationship with God in Jesus' day. However, the Samaritans were a race of half-breed Jews despised by most Jews of Jesus' day. I've included an article about Samaritans on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. is in the upper right-hand corner. As it turns out, Jesus' parable highlights the fruit of a relationship with God in the Samaritan and not the priest or the Levite. You can see how this parable disrupts the we-hate-Samaritans paradigm of that day. In verses 38 to 42 of Luke chapter 10, we see that Martha gets a little aggravated with Mary. Verse 38, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. This is the house of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, also seen in John chapter 11. Martha is doing all the work while Mary is sitting and listening to the teaching of Jesus. Martha asked Jesus for some intercession to get Mary to pitch in a hand but to no avail. As a matter of fact, Mary and Martha are later seen at Simon the leper's house in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13, paralleled by Mark 14, 3 through 9, and John 12, 1 through 11, which is just six days before his crucifixion. On that later occasion, Martha served the meal, and Mary's contribution was breaking open some very expensive ointment with which she anointed the feet of Jesus, followed by wiping his feet with her hair. On that occasion, it was Judas Iscariot who complained about Mary's actions. Then we have some scripture in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, on heartfelt, persistent prayer. Verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place where he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them when ye pray say our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done as in heaven so on earth give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive every one that is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil and he said unto them which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him friend lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto thee, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as much as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you, seek, and ye shall find, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. To uh, see Jesus' discussion on this issue uh, in another place, consult the written notes of BibleTalk.org on Matthew chapter six, verses one through thirty-four. We see that Jesus dealt with this very same issue in Matthew chapter six and seven. But this passage right here is not part of that Sermon on the Mount that's covered in those previous chapters that we talked about. In order to get the full impact of what Jesus is teaching with his model prayer of Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4, we need to see the contrast of Matthew chapter 6 verses 6 through 15. We see in both passages what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But in the Matthew passage, which was given on an earlier occasion, Jesus points out that prayer is to be from each individual's heart and not a series of vain repetitions like the Pharisees were accustomed to doing in public, and that was for the purpose of just being seen. So this prayer actually has substance and action items for God. In other words, meat on the bones, so to speak. We see from Matthew that this prayer was not intended to be a recitation, but rather a model of how prayer is to be done. In Matthew's account, this was included as part of the entire message given that day. In Luke's passage here, one of Jesus' disciples asked for this lesson on prayer. In the process here of answering the question, Jesus again refers to his comments given that day back then as part of the Sermon on the Mount. But he adds more detail regarding importunity, which we see in these verses. In verses 5-13, through Jesus deals with the concept of this importunity in prayer. Now, importunity means, well, I guess it means like the art of nagging. Of course, God knows what we'll ask for and with what intensity and frequency we'll make our request. Eh, He's omniscient. He knows everything. Nonetheless, Jesus gives an example of importunity in this passage to illustrate that for a neighbor, for instance, one might meet a request just because that neighbor is very persistent. What does persistence in prayer prove to God? You might ask, well, I'll tell you what it does. It gives us a look at ourselves and shows us how intent we are on God meeting our particular need. In this passage, we see Jesus teaching that God honors persistent prayer. I'll say it again, God honors persistent prayer. We first of all see it with the illustration of verses 5 through 8. Then we see it in the way Jesus explains the concept of those verses in verses 9 to 13. Note particularly verses 9 and 10, which say, And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you, seek, and ye shall find, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. The Greek verb forms for ask, seek, and knock there are present active imperatives. And that present tense indicates a continuing action on the part of the one praying. Then, like a father, God wants to meet our needs. Now, another aspect of importunity in prayer is fasting. In the written notes for today's reading, I've listed a number of New Testament verses with regard to fasting to show that it is a New Testament concept. It probably wouldn't be very profitable if you're just listening right now, ...for me to read you all the references. So let me just encourage you to do a look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading to see all of those. Perhaps the best description regarding the purpose of fasting is seen in Isaiah chapter 58. You may want to consult that as well. It's difficult from these New Testament passages that I've uh, listed on BibleTrack.org for today's reading. It's uh, It's difficult to pull together a comprehensive doctrine on fasting... But it is obvious that the concept has not been invalidated under grace. It would appear that fasting is akin to this concept of importunity or persistence. It adds a level of sincerity and urgency to our petitions before God. Incidentally, God obviously knows how sincere we really are. But fasting may very well be the key that helps us realize how importantly we regard our own petition. In other words, fasting demonstrates an intensity in prayer that may not be demonstrated, perhaps, in any other way. And then we find the last three verses that we'll be looking at today in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. It says, "'If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent?' Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now, how many times have you had a Christian say to you, Watch out what you pray for, you might get it. Nearly everyone finds amusing the story of the man who finds a bottle from which emerges an evil genie granting three wishes. However, each time the man makes his wish, the evil genie takes advantage of the man's lack of specificity with regard to his request and turns the request into something, well, kind of sinister, perhaps very undesirable. Unfortunately, many Christians have somehow developed the notion that God answers prayer like that fictitious evil genie. There is a teaching that a Christian might make an unwise request of God in prayer and receive it to his peril, just so God can teach him a lesson. Well, let me just say, that's outrageous. These verses teach that God does not answer prayers with provisions that are harmful to us. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, well, they give us a clear direction on which prayers God will answer when he says this, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? God answers prayers that are, quote, according to his will. Incidentally, I should add here that the directions for praying according to his will... Well, those directions come from the Holy Spirit who Jesus promises here in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today.